You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. If you haven't heard of Axe Church before, we are a church in Camas, Washington. You can check us out at axecamas.org. You can see what we're about and what we're up to. We're glad you're listening today and hope you enjoy this sermon. At some point in life, we all uh, come to a place where we begin to understand the difference between right and wrong. We all start to realize that our actions aren't just neutral, that there's a right and a wrong. We know that there are things that we should not do and things that we should do. We shouldn't, for instance, harm other people. That's one thing that we shouldn't do. We start to realize those kinds of things. I remember when my children were young, and my son, I'm, I'm guessing Ethan was not even two yet, between one and two. Maybe he was two because he could talk a decent amount, but I don't know if you guys noticed the, the uh, tux that he was wearing today. Um, that is now the new dress code for Axe Church. So, uh, no, he went to the prom last night and thought, you know what? With how much you pay to rent this thing, you might as well wear it, right? Uh, so he's going to wear it right until we got to turn that thing back in. So, um, see, yeah, that's right. Got to get your money's worth, right? Um, so Ethan's very young, right? And, and we lived in Virginia, um, and, and Corey and Ethan are, are there, and, and Ethan uh, has decided that he wants to hold a concert for me and, and Tiffany, my wife, and Corey. And so he goes into the, to the restroom, and, and he pulls out this thing that, that is like, that we hold the toilet paper rolls on. It's like a metal thing with, uh, I don't know, that little ball on top of it or whatever. He said, this is going to be my microphone. So he brings this toilet paper roll thing out, no toilet paper on it, so it, it didn't really look like a microphone, but to him and his size, it looked about right. And so he decides that he's going he's gonna to come out here and he's going to sing us a song. He's going to do a concert for us. And, and so he's holding this thing, and he decides to sing this third-day song called Rockstar. Okay? That's the name of the song. And, and the line of the song is, or one of the lines in the song says, I want to be a rock star, but I ain't got what it takes. But Ethan would just sing, I want to be a rock star. Just like that, okay? But over and over and over, he didn't go through the song. It was just that one line over and over and over again. And every once in a while, um, Corey would start clapping for Ethan. And Ethan would get so upset. And he would say to Corey, you can't clap yet. It's not the B end. He would call, he, you know, he had seen the word or heard the word the end before, and so he called it the B end, which was, I don't know why, but that's what he would say. It's not the B end. Don't clap. And so as she realized that this would really annoy her little brother, because of her soft heart and her, her lovingness and her just desire to have her brother not be annoyed, she would continuously do this, right? So all the time as he's doing this, you know, like this, and it's not the B end. Corey, stop. It's not the B end. Just getting just worked up. To be fair to Corey, he was singing the same line over and over again, and it was hard to know when the B end was. Um, we were all waiting for the B end at some point to come, okay? Uh, it was very cute, but it went on and on. It was very similar. So uh, eventually he did finish, and he said, okay, it's the B end. Corey didn't clap. <laughs> you can clap now, Corey. Corey. Um, I have video of this, by the way, and for those of you in the youth group who want to see it, $10, I will show it to you. Um, in any case, <laughs> Corey 
you know, learned that there are some things that you should do and some things you shouldn't do, some things that harm other people. Relatively, I'm sure that none of you out here ever uh, harassed your, your younger siblings or your older siblings or anything like that. But, you know, uh, you know, Corey's got to find the Lord, I guess. And so um, she, she did. And I think we all have, right? And when you're young, it sort of starts with that type of thing, right? You learn that certain things annoy people and eventually you're like, I probably shouldn't, shouldn't annoy people shouldn't harass people, that type of thing as you grow up. And, and as we get older, though, uh, we tend to take it up a notch with the bad things or the negative things that we do. I'll sign that for you later. Oh, okay. Um, we tend to take it up a notch, right? As we get older, things tend to get uh, worse, okay? We have a, and, and we have a growing sense as we get older, and we do a lot worse things than clapping before the B end. We start to realize that there are consequences that bring judgment. There are consequences that bring judgment. When I was in the sixth grade, I was uh, in school. Uh, this was back, I lived in California at the time. And I was in class in elementary school, and, and this, the teacher gives us this project, and she says, go uh, in, the, you know, in groups and sit there, and I want you to make a list of all the things that you would bring if you were a pioneer traveling across the United States. So I'm there with a group of other sixth grade 12-year-old boys, and we start making this list, and I decide, because I'm hilarious, that I'm going to write some funny stuff down that was very inappropriate. I won't tell you what I wrote. Um, and again, 10 bucks afterwards, and I'll tell you what I wrote. But, but I wrote something that was very inappropriate on the paper, right? Showed it to the guys. They're all laughing, okay? I know you can't imagine that I would ever do something like that, but, you know, um, I was a lawyer, so it got much worse. I was, I'm there, and the teacher starts to walk over right after I do this. So I start guilty scribbling trying to scribble the thing out because I know she's going to come and ask to see what we've been doing, and I don't want her to see this inappropriate thing that I wrote. But she gets over there before I can get it all scribbled out, takes the paper from me, what were you writing, looks at it, oh, you know, um, and decides that she's going to uh, give me a detention. Now, a detention was no big deal. Normally, I could get a detention. It was like during lunch or whatever. I got a lot of them. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't that big of a deal. But this one, she said, I'm going to take this paper that you wrote, and then just in case they don't know, I'm going to write the thing that you wrote out so that everyone can see what you wrote. And I want you to take this to your parents. I think I had to get it signed, along with the detention. Give this to your dad. So you know my dad. Um, I knew my dad. And I can tell you that I begged and I pleaded with this woman, uh, this teacher of mine, uh, you know, please don't. You don't know what my dad's going to do. You don't know how bad this is going to be. This is going to be so bad if I take this thing home to my dad. And I knew that because I knew that my dad knew the difference between right and wrong and that this was wrong. And I knew that he had the authority and the power to judge and to execute judgment with a mighty right hand, okay? And so I, I went home, and I brought it, and I was not wrong. Uh, judgment was executed uh, by Mr. Paddle. Uh, Mr. Paddle and Mr. Hindend uh, met more than once, and it was not a pleasant meeting. Um, and so what I learned, though, is that there, there really is such a thing as consequences, there really is such a thing as judgment that when we do what we ought not to do, which we all do starting very young, that it's only right that there should be judgment. I knew that if my dad did not bring judgment in that scenario, it would say something about his character, that he would let me, his child, get away with something like that and think that it was okay to continue to go on acting like that. It would say something about who he was, that judgment was necessary. 
at some level. Now, as we go through the passage today, we're going to um, become familiar with a guy named Felix, who was the governor of Caesarea, okay? And Felix is going to be faced with the gospel. Paul's going to bring the gospel, and he's going to particularly bring the truth to him about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And Felix's reaction is notable, and it gives us some pause to analyze our own reactions and our own thoughts about righteousness and judgment and so on. And so uh, let's get through. You may remember last time, uh, our last message on Acts, Paul was being held in the Roman garrison, and 40-plus of, of these Jewish men got together and conspired to murder him. And then they went and conspired with the chief priests and with, and with the elders and the council to get them to ask the Romans to bring Paul there so they could lie in wait and kill him. Right? And this was told to Paul by Paul's nephew, and then Paul had his nephew tell the commander of the garrison. The commander of the garrison gets 470 soldiers, some on horseback, some walking, and sends Paul under guard to Caesarea, which is kind of the capital where the Roman government was happening in that region, um, to be judged by Felix. Paul does get there safely, and Felix basically says, let's wait until your accusers get here, and he's there in, in Herod's uh, praetorium, and we left him there. So that's where we are this time as we get into chapter 24. If you'll open your Bibles, uh, it will be on a screen um, instead of all the screens this time. But uh, if you'll open your Bible, if you have it, if not, you can use your phone or look on the screen. We're in Acts 24. We're going to start at verse 1. It says this. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, we can see how important it is right here in this verse how important it was to the nation, or at least to the leaders of the nation of Israel, to, to prosecute Paul, that the, that the main guy, right, the main dude has come, the high priest has come along with the elders all the way to Caesarea to accuse Paul. Not only that, they've hired this lawyer named Tertullus, okay? And we don't know anything about Tertullus except that he was, you know, an attorney, that he would have known Roman law, well, he would have known the way to act within the, the courtroom, and, but his presence there is just more evidence about how seriously these guys wanted to take Paul down. This was not a fly-by-night thing. They wanted to end Paul and his ministry concerning Jesus Christ, and so that's what they did. And let's see how our... our uh, hearing starts here. It says, and when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. So this is blah, 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 lawyer talk. Okay? It was not uncommon that you would address a court or a governor in a hearing like this with some flowery language at the beginning, saying something nice about them. Okay? Even today, if you were to uh, go in to say the U.S. Supreme Court, they generally would start with something like, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, and then they go on. But they don't go into this ridiculous flattering, Mr. Chief Justice, and you look so good today, and that little hammer just really brings your eyes out. They don't, that doesn't happen, okay? Uh, most judges would, would kick you out of their courtroom for, for openly flattering like this, but here it was okay. Unfortunately for Tertullus, uh, 
what he was saying was completely empty flattery. Felix was a horrible person, um, was not bringing any kind of peace or anything like that to the Jewish nation. In fact, uh, while Felix was in office, it really sped up the process of starting the war that would eventually happen between the Jews and the Romans. He was a bad guy. He was constantly hunting down uh, these Jewish zealots and killing them, oftentimes crucifying them. Um, he was not. eventually gets removed by Nero, who also wasn't that great of a guy, uh, because because Felix was so inept at the way he was handling uh, the governorship of this region. But that's what Tertullus says to him anyway. Um, And then he goes on. And he says, For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him, and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by, and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. They accused Paul of being a plague. Essentially what they're saying here is, look, this guy's a dissenter. This guy's out here in the entire world causing dissension, you know, causing trouble, causing, causing difficulties that are going to come back on Rome, that he's, that he's basically riling people up. And, of course, the, the way they're putting this kind of, he's, gonna, he's riling people up kind of against Rome, against, you know, causing that kind of trouble that's going to put cities in turmoil and so on. Now, to be fair, from what we've studied from Paul, this kind of huge trouble only happened in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Thessalonica, Berea, and Corinth. So, yeah, I mean, they weren't wrong. Uh, Paul's preaching had brought a lot of uh, trouble. But here's the thing. It wasn't Paul who brought it, right? You know, we've, we've studied this stuff. It wasn't Paul. Paul wasn't violent. Paul wasn't looking for rights. He was preaching Jesus Christ, and the people there rejected the message so strongly that they were causing trouble in these other places, not Paul. So their accusation was just not true. Paul wasn't out looking for trouble. He was looking to make disciples for Jesus Christ. The people who didn't like Jesus were making trouble. But I won't say that what they say is completely untrue. I would just say it's about a half-truth. And it's not something that he should be accused of. And they call him a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Um, I believe this is the first time the word Nazarenes is used um, to refer to Christians. And, the, and, and it's, just a, it's just one of the ways that Christians were referred to. They're referred to a number of ways because Jesus was from Nazareth. They used the word Nazarenes. And they accused him of profaning the temple. If you remember um, from a couple weeks ago, what they originally said was that he was causing all this turmoil all over the world, but that also they, he had brought a guy named Trophimus, who was a Greek, into the inner courts of the temple, which would have been illegal and would have been punishable by death. And so again, they're bringing this uh, back to him, saying, yeah, he brought this guy in the temple also. He, def- he defamed the temple. He desecrated the temple. And of course, we know Paul had not done that. He had not done that at all. Um, now, and now Paul will get his chance to speak after this lawyer speaks. We know Paul likes to speak, so let's see what he says. It says, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So this is Paul's first flowery thing. You'll notice in it that it has no flattery. He just mentions a couple of facts. I know that you've been a judge here for a certain amount of years, and I'm cheerful to go ahead and give my defense. It sounds like he's being nice, but he's really not saying anything flattering because Paul's not going to lie like this guy just to make uh, Felix like him. So he says this, uh, and then he goes on uh, from there in the next few verses, and it says this. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, 
nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. So, what's going on here? Paul is saying a couple things. We've got sort of the legal side and sort of the theological side. He's saying on the legal side, look, it, I was only in Jerusalem for 12 days total. I think it's been five days since he moved to Caesarea. So we're talking about a total of 17 days. So one of his points here is, look, whatever happened, whatever these guys are accusing me of, it should be really easy to find proof of it because it just happened. What they're accusing me of had to have just happened because I've only been here for a few days. So if they don't have very much proof, that would say something about whether or not it's likely that I did these things they're accusing me of. So he's saying that. And then he's, he's saying that, look, I was in the temple, and nobody found me causing a ruckus in the temple. I was peaceful. Nor did I cause a ruckus in the city or in the synagogues, among the people, nothing. He's basically saying, these guys are accusing me of causing all this trouble, but they can't prove any of it. They can't prove any of it. I didn't do any of these things. And then he lays out that he worships God according to the way. And the way is just another name that the Christ followers had. Okay, they were called the way. And, and of course, Tertullus would have, or I'm sorry, Felix would have been familiar with who the way was. Uh, and, and he's just saying, look, I am following the Jewish scriptures, the same scriptures that these people are following, and I just happen to be doing it in this particular way because I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of these scriptures, and so I worship God in this way. Okay, I don't worship some other God. It's not some new religion. It's not something like that. I'm worshiping the same God these guys are worshiping. This is a difference of what? Theology. Not the kind of thing you should be getting involved with. This is a difference of theology. And so, um, Paul mentions that he has this hope, and that it's the same hope that these guys have, that most Jews had, which was that there would be a resurrection of the dead. Of course, that's our hope as Christ followers also. We know as Jesus Christ was resurrected, that we also be resurrected unto life in Christ if we know him. And so he's saying, that's my hope. He also mentions there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, Right? That, the, that there's going to be a resurrection that some people will not like and that some people will really like. He's making this point. Okay? All will be resurrected. Some will face judgment. Some will be with God. Okay? And then he says this, because of that view, because of the resurrection, because I have an eternal view of life, I strive to always have a good conscience towards God and people. I want my conscience to be right before it's God and people. I want to live righteously because I understand that there are eternal rewards and eternal punishments at play. So he makes this point for them. Then he continues, and he says this. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. So Paul has, is bringing alms, which is, which is money that he brought in relief for the church in Jerusalem. This isn't the first time he's done this. There are poor people, suffering people in Jerusalem, Christ followers there, and he's brought money, assumedly that he's taken in a collection of these other churches, to bring to Jerusalem. So he's brought that, and it says, and offerings, which would have been sacrificial offerings that he brought to the temple. If you remember from a, a couple chapters back, Paul paid for the expenses of several men who had taken a Nazarite vow. So he would have brought uh, money uh, to purchase uh, sacrifices and so on that were for that vow. So those are the things that he brought. 
And he says, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. So here he is. He's in the temple. He's not doing anything wrong. He doesn't have a bunch of people around. He's not causing trouble. He's there purified after this, after this ritual that he went through. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead. I am being judged by you this day. So here's what Paul's saying. I'm in the temple. I'm not causing any trouble. I'm not causing commotion. I'm, I don't have a mob. I'm not causing a ruckus. Here I am. These guys from Asia, if you'll remember, it was some guys from Asia Minor that had come, maybe from Ephesus, that knew about Paul, that then saw him in the temple, and then tried, because they had wanted to get him before, when they saw him in Jerusalem, they tried to get him again. They're the ones who caused the mob. And Paul's saying, if they want to say something, they should be here. Apparently, they weren't there. These guys from Asia. Now, it had only been a few days, so we don't know exactly why they didn't show up. Either they were done with the, with the time of the feast and they went back to Asia Minor, or maybe they didn't want to perjure themselves in front of the governor of the region because that would have been big trouble for them too. Either way, Paul's saying, where are my accusers? These are the guys, these guys from Asia Minor are the guys who were saying, I did something. You all are just repeating it. So where are they? Where are these accusers? And he's saying, if that's not it, then the only other thing that could be is this one statement that I made concerning when I said, hey, concerning the resurrection of the dead is why I'm being judged, if you remember that from when he's in front of the Sanhedrin. He's saying, that could be the only other thing that I am being accused of. And of course, this wouldn't have been an illegal statement for him to make. It would have made, he's making it even more clear, I think, to Felix that the issue that, they're, that these guys are worked up about is a theological issue. It's an issue of, of, of interpreting Scripture. Now, the Romans, if they're smart, and they were smart enough generally not to get involved in this, are not going to get involved in the interpretation of Scripture between different sects of Judaism. And so as long as Paul can show that that's what this is about, he's unlikely to get in trouble with these guys. And so he shows them that. Let's see how Felix reacts. It says, but when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So he punts. He says, I'm not going to make a decision today. I'm not going to do that. You guys go home, Paul. You go over here. We're going to wait for Lysias, which was the commander of the garrison who had originally um, taken Paul into custody when the Jews were trying to beat him up. We'll wait till he gets here. And then we'll see what he has to say, and then I'll make a decision. Meanwhile, Paul is given liberty, some, which, which is to say he had some ability to, it wasn't like he was down in the dungeon. He was being kept in this, in this place, probably one of the rooms there in Herod's uh, praetorium, and his friends were allowed to bring him stuff. At this time, the Romans would not have been providing food and clothing for someone in custody like this. So it would have been the, the Caesarean church, but Christ followers in Caesarea who would have been providing Paul his clothing, his food, and so on during this time. And we don't know who all it would have been, but we know that people such as like Philip the Evangelist, one of the first deacons lived there. We know that Cornelius and his family, the first Gentiles to, to become Christ followers, lived there. And so we don't know all who would have been there, but it's very possible those people would have been the, the ones literally involved with helping Paul out during this time. And so that's what happens. And Felix punts it um, the, you know, away for a little while. And then uh, he calls Paul. We're going to see about that in just a second. He says this. It says, And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, 
he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. So Paul proclaims the gospel to Felix. He proclaims the gospel to Felix and his wife, and he reasons with them about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And this frightens Felix. It frightens him. And Felix sends him away. We're going to come back to that in a second. Let's go back. Let's go to the last couple verses in this section. It says, uh, Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. All right. So, uh, Felix is hoping to get paid, right? He's hoping to get a bribe, so he'll call Paul from time to time, hoping that Paul is going to bring him money. He apparently thinks that Paul has some amount of money. Maybe the people who are providing for Paul are some of the wealthier believers in the area. I don't know. Maybe it's because he brought this large gift to Jerusalem to the believers. But some way or another, uh, obviously Felix thinks Paul's got access to cash. And so he calls him from time to time so that he can see if Paul will offer him a bribe, which he doesn't. And Paul's there for two years. So in that, in that section, two years have passed. Paul is, in, is in custody for those two years. And then uh, Portius uh, comes in. Portius Festus comes in and takes over for Felix because Felix was in big trouble with Nero because Felix very ineptly handled sort of an outbreak of violence and so on uh, with the Jews and the Syrians there in the city of Caesarea. And so, you know, he's lucky he actually wasn't executed probably, but Felix happened to have a very high up brother in, in the Roman world. Um, and, so he, and so he avoided that. And he was in pretty hot water with the Jews who were the ones who were accusing him in Rome. And so what he did was he left Paul in custody so as not to upset them anymore on his way out. And that's the end of the section we're studying today, but I want to I think about something that very much stuck out to me in this section of Scripture. It's this interaction between Paul and Felix and his wife. Okay, Let's read verses 24 and 25 again really quick. It says this. And after some days when Felix with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish... Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Let's break this down for a second. As Paul regularly does, as we've seen consistently in his ministry, he preaches the gospel to Felix. He preaches the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he rose again on the third day, that we can have redemption and grace and peace in him, that we can be made right with God, okay? But what was involved specifically in Paul's preaching to Felix here? Okay, first it says Paul reasoned with Felix, okay? There's no suggestion here that Paul asked Felix to believe in blind faith anything. That he told him a story, he said, you need to believe this in blind faith, that's what I do, and so on. He reasoned with him. And what did he reason with him about? He reasoned with him about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, now, righteousness and judgment go hand in hand here, okay? They go hand in hand. Righteousness is, is a standard, so that we're clear on what this means. Righteousness is a standard. 
And it can be used in more than one way. It can be used for an action or a set of actions to say, oh, that was a righteous thing that you did. And generally, if that's true, that means that you did a righteous action in a righteous way with a righteous frame of mind. Not an easy thing for most of us humans to do, to hit all three of those. Okay, normally righteousness is something that's going to be, that the real righteousness, perfect righteousness is something that only God has. Only that God has, right? So we can talk about somebody did something righteous, but generally to call somebody truly righteous or perfectly righteous would not be something we would normally do. Okay, um, we might talk about righteous actions, but rarely about righteous people. Now, the only way to be perfectly righteous, perfectly righteous, is to have every thought and every action be perfectly righteous. It's the only way you can be perfectly righteous. And that means that everything, every action and every thought that you ever have has to be perfect towards God and other people. Loving God perfectly, loving your neighbor perfectly. All the time. That would be righteousness, Okay. That would be righteousness. And here's where judgment comes in. Righteousness and the judgment to come. God is righteous. God is righteous. And he cannot be in relationship with anyone who is not righteous. Because God is righteous, he must judge unrighteousness. He must. If God does not judge unrighteousness, he would no longer be righteous. If he's righteous, he has to judge unrighteousness, right? He has no choice about that. So when Paul reasons with Felix about righteousness and the judgment to come, Paul is explaining that God is righteous, and the only way to avoid condemnation and judgment from God is to be perfectly righteous. If a person believes in God, and the evidence does justify belief, this is, what he's, this is what he's reasoning with Felix. If a person believes in God and the evidence is there, that God does exist, then they must understand that God is righteous. Okay, that would be point one. Because if God were not righteous, his character, if his character weren't perfect and righteous, he couldn't be the anchor, anchor and grounding of morality, Right? Couldn't be the anchor and grounding morality if he wasn't righteous. You see, they had all these Roman and Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes and Mars and, I don't know, other candy bar names and stuff like that. They, they had all these people, okay, out there. But the problem was that they weren't righteous at all. In fact, they acted worse than most humans. If you read the stories, the mythologies, and so on, they could not have been the source for morality. But yet there was morality. And yet most of these people did believe in a God. And so as Paul's reasoning with Felix, he's saying, if you believe in a God, and let me show you the evidence for why there's a God, let me talk about Jesus rising from the dead and so on. If you believe that, then you must know that he's righteous because if he wasn't righteous, there would be no such thing as morality. But there is such a thing as morality, so he must be perfectly righteous. But if he's perfectly righteous, he must judge unrighteousness. Or he would stop being perfectly righteous because a perfectly righteous God would judge unrighteousness. My dad, if he had not punished me when I did that thing I did in sixth grade, he wouldn't have been righteous. He needed to do what needed to be done there. It, he would have actually been making a mistake. In fact, it was part of his character to properly punish me. And I didn't like it at the time. We rarely do. But that doesn't mean that righteousness doesn't demand justice, judgment. Okay? So, we have Felix, who is a judge. We just saw him judging. This is part of what he regularly does. So he's not having a hard time understanding God as a judge. And he's not having to understand, a hard time understanding that a moral or righteous judge 
has to judge on righteousness, even though we know he's not a righteous judge. He's looking for a bribe. His view of justice is obviously skewed, but he understands that the object of judgment is supposed to be justice. And of course, a righteous God must bring perfect righteous judgment. And here's the problem that every honest person, every honest person eventually realizes this, okay? If you're honest with yourself, this is the problem that you run into. No one is righteous. No one. Here's what the scripture says in Romans. It says Romans 3, 9, the end of that verse through 12. Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And then Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who's accepted out of this? Nobody. None of us. Jesus is the only one who doesn't fall into this category. Every single human being who has ever lived on this planet has sinned, has rebelled against God, is unrighteous, has done unrighteous things. Now for Felix, as Paul reasons through this, his response is to be frightened because he knows judgment is coming and he knows he's not righteous. So he's scared because Felix as a governor knows the proper punishment for unrighteousness. This guy is, is condemning people to death all the time for their sins, for their, for their crimes, and so on. And he understands what Romans 6.23 tells us, that for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He understands that the wages of sin are death, and so he's afraid. And here's the deal. For all of us, it should be frightening also, unless we follow Christ. It should be frightening for us unless we follow Christ because it's through the gift of God that we can avoid judgment, punishment, eternal death. It is by the grace of Christ that we are made righteous. Not because we are righteous in ourselves. I just told you no one is. Not because we're righteous in ourselves, or that we could ever be righteous, that you could ever do enough good things, give enough money to the United Way, whatever it is. You could never buy righteousness, and you will never be righteous, except that we are made right with God. And we are seen by God, our perfect God, as righteous. And why is that? If we follow Christ, we're seen as righteous. It says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God in him. It, God is looking past your unrighteousness. He doesn't see it. When he looks at you, he only sees the righteousness of God that you have through Jesus Christ if you follow him and accept him. But if you don't have it, guess what he sees? Your unrighteousness. So when the resurrection of the just and the unjust happens, remember, there are no just except those who have been justified by Christ. Those without him, those who refuse him, those who rebel against him should be afraid, as Felix is here. His response, interestingly, is not, I'm going to come to the Lord right now. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. His response is fear, the response of the one who knows that judgment is coming, but refuses to accept Christ and to live for him as Lord. Their response is fear and get away. I don't want to talk to you right now. 
Let me, let me have to think about this later. Let me go back to my own thing and do my own thing. I'll think about this later. I want to think about judgment and condemnation right now. And this helps me understand in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to people and he says this in Matthew 5, 5, 5, 6, something like that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now here's the thing. When he's saying that to these people, they know they have this. They know the law. They know they can't be filled with righteousness. No matter how much they hunger and thirst for it, they can't be filled with righteousness. It's not possible. But it was Jesus who was saying that they shall be filled, and it was Jesus who was going to provide the way, the only way that any human could ever be filled with righteousness and avoid judgment, and that was through his death and resurrection. Of course, he knew he would do that. He knew he would provide a way for us to have righteousness, not our own but his. Not our own, but his. If it wasn't Jesus saying that, if it wasn't his Sermon on the Mount, it wouldn't have made any sense. He was the only one who could ever put us in a position to be filled with righteousness. And we need to ask ourselves, do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? There's nothing quite like the forgiveness that comes from Christ and feeling that feeling where your guilt and your shame go away. And, you, and you're sitting in, in God's righteousness. There's nothing quite as amazing as that feeling. That's a feeling we're going to have for eternity if we're Christ followers. For, for us, righteousness is not only a possibility for us. Avoiding judgment is not only a possibility for us. It's a promise if we'll follow Christ. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will forgive us and make us righteous with his righteousness. This is such a significant truth. I mean, we could sit here and should sit here, not only this morning, but the entire rest of not only our lives, but eternity, contemplating the amazing miracle that would allow someone like me to have imputed to them the perfect righteousness of God. That's unthinkable. That's a miracle beyond anything I can imagine because I am not righteous. But in Christ, I am. And so are you if you follow him. And with his righteousness, we have his Holy Spirit. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit is where the conviction of our own unrighteousness comes and the conviction that the judgment is coming. And in John 16, 7 through it, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's what was happening with Felix. The Holy Spirit's coming and convicting sin, righteousness, the judgment to come. And he's afraid. Instead of pressing into Christ, he pushes him away. It's that same Holy Spirit that gives us the power to walk in righteousness. And that's where self-control that Paul mentions comes in. Unfortunately, as I was preparing the sermon today, I realized when I got to self-control that that was its own sermon. So that's hopefully, Lord willing, next week. This week we're just going to talk about righteousness and the judgment to come because we don't have time to get into self-control. But Felix was afraid of the coming judgment, but his actions were not the ones that he should have taken, but they're the ones that so many of us take. And maybe some of you who are Christ followers spent a certain amount of time pushing it away until you finally came and accepted it. That may be 
Here's the thing. People don't like talking about hell, judgment, condemnation. I don't like it either. I know we don't like to talk about it. But here's the thing. To avoid this topic is to show that we don't love people enough to tell them the truth. There is the judgment to come. There is. It's a fact. Some people will say that judgment's not fair. God would never judge us for our sins because he's just all love. He's just all love. He's just all grace. He's not going to judge anybody. Everyone's going to be okay. But that's unreasonable. It does not make any sense. As Paul's reasoning with Felix, he's saying, listen, God is righteous. Because he's righteous, judgment must come. It's necessary that it must. God doesn't have the ability to change the nature of logic, in this case, that that flows from his character, in order to not have judgment come when it must come, or he would not be righteous. One person on Facebook said he thought it was funny that we believed that there was a hell. And I think to myself, man, I can't think of anything less funny. There's not anything less funny than the fact that there's a hell. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, okay, pastor, are you going to sit here and talk about hell all the time now? Because that's kind of a downer. And here's my answer to you. If that is what we need, if we need to study hell and judgment in order to be motivated to preach the good news and see people go from death to life, then yes, I'm going to talk about hell and judgment. We cannot avoid the reality that of what Jesus is calling us to, okay? As, as disciples, he's calling us to a better life in him, no question. Amazing life in him, right? Relationship and friends and the body of Christ and, and, the, and being able to use our gifts and being able to live in him and in righteousness and so on. But he's not just calling us to all that. He's also calling us away from judgment, wrath that's coming. Coming to Christ is about more than just the good stuff. I know that we want to say, let's just talk about the good. Let's just talk about how good it is to be a believer. But guess what? It's not always good. Sometimes rough things happen. We have people in our body right now going through rough things in their physical bodies, and their financial lives, and things like that. Being a Christian is not an antidote to dealing with rough things. I'll tell you what it is an antidote, though, to hell, which is pretty important. That's an eternal rough thing. So while I believe that following Christ is amazing, and it's amazing life, and I'll never stop saying that no matter what happens to me, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I believe it's amazing to be his child. I also want people to understand that part of why we come to Christ is because it's a way to have his righteousness and to avoid the judgment to come because it's coming. It's coming. Any gospel message that avoids the subject of judgment, of hell, avoids one of the main reasons why Christ has called us to preach the gospel, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. You got to tell them the whole thing. Don't sell Christianity. Don't sell Christianity as something that's going to make people happy all the time. They're just going to be upset with you. It doesn't make them happy all the time. You've got to preach the truth and the reality of righteousness and the judgment to come. The gospel means good news. What is the good news? Not just that you get to live a great life in Christ, but that Jesus has provided the way for us to be right with God and avoid the judgment to come. We have a very judgment-averse society. People don't want to hear about judgment. 
There's nothing new about that. Governor Felix here, 2,000 years ago, didn't want to hear about it either. I don't like to think about it, okay? But please don't let yourself fall into a sense that we don't need to be vigilant, that we don't need to continue to evangelize our neighbors. Please don't lose focus on the fact that there are some people who are going to hell in your life and that you have been called in the authority of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples. You may not like judgment. You may not like the doctrine. I don't like it either. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about those who struggle with the doctrine of hell. He says this, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? Okay? So if you're saying, I don't like judgment, I don't like condemnation, I don't think God should do that, here's the question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins? And at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. It's not like God has made this coming judgment and not done everything, risked everything, done everything to give us a way out. He came and became a human being, the God of the universe that created all those stars that you see, came and made himself a human being and died. Let human beings, his own creation, kill him. But he rose again. And all of that was for you to be able to avoid the judgment. So he is, while he has to provide the judgment because it's consistent with his character, the love and mercy that's consistent with his character caused him to love you so much to also provide a way out. So don't complain about the fact that there's a hell. Don't, don't judge God like you know better than him about whether there should be a hell or whether there should be a judgment. Let me just tell you, it's a demand of righteousness that there's a judgment. How about be happy? How about be joyful? How about be ecstatic? that he's provided a way where you don't have to have it, where you can have his righteousness. How about live in that? How about tell your friends about that? How about tell your family about that? How about tell everyone you know about that so they can also avoid the judgment to come? Because right now in their life, probably what they're doing is like Felix. Come back to me later. I'll talk to you about it later. I don't want to think about it. I want to think about judgment. I want to think about condemnation. I want to think about hell. And I don't blame them. But we better start realizing it and thinking about it. If we're going to give the full scripture, the full gospel, this is part of it. We need to reason with people about the fact that God has done everything for us to keep us from judgment. And all it takes is to believe in Jesus Christ and make him Lord of our lives. We need to be thinking this week as we go through our day about the fact that there is a judgment to come and what that means for the people around us and what we're called to do. And we need to be praying and we need to be preaching the gospel, the incredible good news of righteousness that can be imputed to you, of redemption from this judgment of perfection in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, thanks for listening to our sermon. Again, this has been a sermon from Axe Church in Camas, Washington. We hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. If you did, you can subscribe to our channel as well as liking and commenting. We love to hear how these sermons are impacting you. 
You can also take a look at our podcast series that we have out. And we'll catch you again next week.